Pod Against Crusaders podcast. So we're your hosts, uh, Matt Durkin, Griffin Duffin, Nate Przewski, and Jake Foster. <laughs> In this episode of the Von Against Crusaders podcast, we will be discussing uh, Billy's time jumps and how the novel seems to be written from an outside perspective that examines society, um, soldiers who people have been through, and people in general who have been through trauma and like just how they could recover from it. And also uh, reasons why soldiers like Lazaro enlist, uh, enlist in the military uh, along with uh, so- soldiers today. the novel uh we're gonna discuss how uh billy keeps having uh sort of these strange dreams and uh sort of time jumps and and uh and talk about how uh and uh talk about how billy and like uh billy and the plot seem to be uh connected in a way because uh it's almost like it's almost like uh Vonnegut seemed to almost want to do that. Uh, they're both very crazy and confusing. Obviously, uh, Billy has his Billy has kind of these uh, sort sort of uh, he has a lot of men. Yeah, obviously, it, obviously at this point in the novel, he's having a lot of mental issues and uh, with all these with all these dreams and uh, and time jumps and uh, and. Uh, and it's almost it's all that the narration it, it it almost seems to be like it really seems to be like sort of like written and like oh i guess you could say like from uh trout trout uh, what's it called trout from yeah but trout from Midorian, uh perspective because uh um because they they kind of it seems to really sort of examine uh society's a lot of society's problems and like Billy just sort of like uh, so uh, he's a very he's a good example of how it really uh, how um, he's a good example of how war really affects people. So like just the way Bill, the way Vonnegut wrote the plot, it's almost like Billy has all these time jumps and stuff, and he goes from dream to dream, from place to place. It just brings them. That's the, the way that Billy's thing is. It's kind of how the whole plot was, like throughout the whole novel that Vonnegut wrote it keeps jumping and jumping and jumping it's very confusing but very interesting at the same time because it almost seemed that's the way that a uh like a trophomore dorian novel would be written because trophomore dorians are aliens and they're three million whatever miles away or whatever from earth and just the way vonnegut wrote it and examined billy's identity throughout the whole novel it really explains like on how crazy Billy and mine was and confusing the whole story is and childish almost but it examines how soldiers can act today and then not because of just the way they dealt the whole war after the fact. Yeah for me at least the layout of the novel kind of gives me a perspective and how it is with PTSD the way it jumps around because when I'm reading I get hooked on like the war parts of the story and then it jumps to a different year I find that very intriguing, how it gives you perspective, how their daily life could be, and how they jump from time to time and get these flashbacks. 
Uh, drawing back to the Trail Famidorian part, I feel like uh, it was also pretty important to add how uh, long this segment was within Chapter 5 of, like, the description of Billy's time on the planet and how, like, uh, if you are going to make the connection that it's, like, almost from a Trail Famidorian's perspective, I feel like Vonnegut did a good job of, like, including a lot of details about Billy's time there and, like, how he communicated with the aliens there and, like, how he he included how like um <clears throat> he would ask them like what can I do to change like the outcomes of war and stuff and they were like everything's kind of inevitable and like you can't do anything to change it it's just how it goes. I also uh, I also feel like uh, obviously it it uh, it seems to almost be written like we talked about from the Trump Midori perspective but uh, it could also be uh, at, at the time uh, Kurt Vonnegut. Vonnegut, uh, sorry, he, he could have done this on purpose at the time because this isn't exactly your average war book because it, it, it goes over all these sensitive things that happen in war. And at, at the time period where he wrote it in 1969, I believe, uh, uh, most war movies, uh, like in last podcast, they were, they were pretty like glorified and, uh, and a lot of them are very controversial. So it's, it's, it's almost like his, I feel like it might be almost his own way of trying to express his views, but, uh, but, tr- but try not to, not, not embarrassed of it, but uh, doesn't want to get hate for it because uh, his views, his views might be, or pr- at the time they probably were uh, a lot different from h- how, how people thought of soldiers in general and uh and how he and he sort of just uses the Trophmodorian's perspective as like his own way of examining uh the the societal problem that is still very prevalent today as well. Well it's almost like throughout the whole those throughout the whole novel so far when he's making those time jumps, Vonnegut keeps explaining that uh Billy Billy knows what's gonna happen for each event throughout Four, five, and six, because he saw the future apparently, and the way he keeps he keeps examining that the way he knows the way he's gonna die, and even in chapter six, like he was okay with dying when he was explaining that uh, he was gonna get uh, Zaro threatened to shoot him, and then years later he made a time jump to where he was giving a speech in Chicago, and he was like, "I will be dead in like this amount of time, like ten minutes, whatever it was," and because he Zaro made a promise that he was gonna kill him, and then cops came up on the stage and. He ended up getting shot, and it's just a huge, it's a weird, it's like, when you talk about a war novel, you don't really talk about how aliens and how someone can know the future. It's just a weird way Vonnegut examined the novel and how someone can see it afterwards, the fact that they went to war. It's yeah. just very different compared to other movies like Matt was saying in novels. Yeah, something I found interesting was the, the aliens' perspective of uh, humans, how they viewed them. I can't remember the I sort of remember the specific examples, but there's um, one about their having two legs and another one about how they uh, humans mate. I found that particularly interesting just to see how different people, you know, aliens view humans with a clear mind. If like how, if anyone's just watching us, how they would uh, especially view us. Yeah, even when he was talking about how the aliens mate, uh, he, I was more shocked by the way that he, he had to mention that aliens needed eight meetings members, whatever it was, like seven or eight or whatever it was. And then 
it's almost seemed like Billy wasn't surprised about that just because he's so used to these dreams and hallucinations about the aliens. It's it's just strange how these three chapters are mainly focused about the hospital and then aliens and truffle work and going there. I also found it interesting how the aliens uh, had, like, the power to, like, tell the future and what's going to happen, like, in the outcome of the universe, but they don't do anything about it. And then it's kind of, like, draws a small connection to how Billy has, like, almost, like, a power to, like, look back and forward in the future. But, like, he's not in control of it. But, like, the Trophim and Dorians are able to just know, like, based on, like, whatever powers that they have. And then Billy has, like, just these random flashbacks that, like, kind of draw a connection. I found it interesting how, um, they, since Billy, Billy basically knew his death, but like the, like you said about the aliens, they don't, they don't do anything about it. So Billy kind of just accepted that he was going to die from being, uh, killed by, what's his name? Was Lazaro. Lazaro. Yeah. He didn't really yeah, do that, anything to try to stop him. Yeah. That kind of goes back to, uh, I found like a big common theme in this book, sort of like the like a fate and free will type theme where uh billy's almost uh he 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 he, he accepts that uh his fate whether he dies or not but he also understands that um he also understands that he as a human uh uh has the free will to really do whatever he wants even though yeah even though for a lot of people may not feel like at that times that that's also part of that's also part of the dreams because uh, i believe the truffondorians mentioned uh they examined about 31 different species and uh humans were really the only one who discussed free will at all two of this podcast uh, we have uh, Mr. Perovich here and uh, we just uh, so we wanted to ask you some questions uh, so in chapter five of this novel uh, Billy Pilgrim the uh, protagonist of the story uh, he <clears throat> sorry he was a soldier and uh, he che- after the war he checked himself into a mental ward mm-hmm. and uh because he he really he found life he he claimed he uh, he found life uh, meaningless and uh, we we just wanted to get your perspective of um, like how like um how do like soldiers and like people who have gone through trauma in uh, in general sort of uh, how do they how how can they overcome that uh, obstacle and. Uh, like, what can society do to, like, help these kind of people? Oh, boy. That's a... Well, they could write a dissertation, I suppose, on this question. But, um, you know, one of the things that you guys talked about was, you know, how to get past, how to overcome, uh, like, past experiences. Mm-hmm. And, um, and part of the problem, I think, in society is the way you even talk about it. The way you just phrase the question, how do you overcome it? How do you get past it? We have this idea that we're all supposed to be happy, and happiness 
you know, means free from, uh, free from being free from negative things, you know? And so we have to eliminate those things in our life to be happy. Right. And, uh, the whole self-help book industry has made millions of dollars, billions of dollars on that. Right. How do we eliminate negative thinking and negative thoughts and problems so that we can be happy. And that in itself is a problem because that's a lie. It's a myth, you know? Um, first of all, negative things and bad things that happen to people, it's part of life, right? You cannot escape them. And to this idea that you can kind of either get past them, overcome them, or power through them, you've got power through it, right? You know? uh, that's also a myth, too, because the more that you try to power through, it's like getting into a prize fight, and the thing starts fighting back even harder, you know? And, uh, and it just makes things even worse. And then then there's the guilt and the sense of failure that comes with, oh, I can't get past this. There's something even more wrong with me because other people can get past it. Why can't I, right? So there's this myth about uh, that we're supposed to be happy all the time, that uh, if we work hard enough, we can get through these things. And all of those things uh, don't work. It just makes things worse, right? If I asked you right now, Think of an unpleasant experience that you had as a child, some kind of event. And uh, and then you start to think about how it impacted you and, and those kind of things. And then I ask you, okay, now I want you to delete that from your mind, put it in the trash, forget about it. Can you do it? No. Absolutely no. not. And part of that experience is also what you learned from that experience and it made you who you are, right? So it's not about getting past it from a, from a Christian perspective, a religious perspective. It's about accepting it, embracing it, and about transforming the experience and having the Holy Spirit and God help you to transform the experience. What does that mean in, in like psychological terms? Well, um, you develop a different relationship with that experience. You see it from a different perspective learn to do that. You learn to manage those experiences and those feelings rather than eliminating them right? and how to cope with them. And so you create a different relationship with those experiences. Maybe you learn something from it, you grew from it, and so you have a different perspective on it. So that's one way to cope with that. Um, you expand it. You make room for other things in your life and put it in perspective so that doesn't have as huge of an impact on you. So it doesn't preoccupy your life and, and so it doesn't define you as who you are as a person, that one experience. And so how do we do that from a Christian perspective? Well, we focus on uh, the thing that's at hand, you know, uh, focus on the meaning and the values that we have in our lives and we, um, we put forth effort into living our life according to those values and placing ourselves at the service of others. This is a Christian call, right? Truth, unity, love, charity, um, and uh, focus on those things so that this thing, whatever this was, uh, again, is uh, your mind and your, your focus is expanded so that there's room for it, but it's not having as big an impact on you in your life. So these are just kind of coping mechanisms, I guess, that uh, that you can use. But the idea of overcoming it or forget about it or powering through just makes things worse, you know. So it's all about acceptance, right? Uh, acceptance and then uh, recognizing that life has its pitfalls. You know, even the happiest of marriages 
they're not perfect, right? There's frustration and there's, you know, things that get upsetting to you. There's incompatibility sometimes. There's all kinds of things, right? But that does not mean that it's not a happy marriage. It's just part of life. Suffering is part of life. Um, but what suffering does, from our Christian perspective, is it allows the person who's suffering to unite their suffering with Christ's suffering. And it allows the rest of us to minister to that person and become more Christ-like as we serve that person. So what can society do? Well, to be compassionate, to be, uh, uh, to, to live the Beatitudes as Jesus teaches them. Blessed are those who mourn. So to be with those people in their suffering um, and to, uh, to minister to them, right, in whatever way that we know how and can do today. So um, I'm not a psychologist or from a psychological perspective, I'm PTSD and it, it has so many ramifications to it and so many applications to it today. There's all kinds of therapies for that. But I would say the first therapy that all those would employ is acceptance. First of all, you have to accept that this happened and then create uh, some kind of a new relationship with that thing that happened. Sorry, am I going over time? No, no, okay. no. All right. Um, well, one th I thought one thing I thought was uh, interesting is when you asked, um, like, all these self-help books, self-help they've made millions of dollars um do you have any theory of why society sort of just kind of uh gives into all these self-help books well a lot of it because we bought into the lie the happiness trap there's a there's a uh fellow i figured his name that wrote a book called the happiness trap and that's exactly what it's about you know we look at social media today too and everyone's posting pictures of their vacations in hawaii and stuff and then we look at that and it's a well, my life was crap compared to that, right? You know, so yeah, you got to get yeah. down on yourself. And then we have this whole body image thing that everyone's supposed to look like Adonis, you know? And uh, so we, you know, the whole um, gym industry and health fitness industry, you know, because we have these unrealistic models that are, that are held up for us that we can never attain, you know? Uh, and, and we shoot for that and then we fail, right? So uh, we're always being reminded media, even commercials, that we're, we're not thin enough, we're not good-looking enough, we don't have enough hair, we don't, you're just not enough. And we buy into this lie that uh, we can't accept ourselves the way we are. And so that's where these self-help books and so on come in. They, they, I think, prey on people's own dissatisfaction of themselves. But the point is, there's nothing wrong with you, <laughs> you know. Uh, suffering and, and, like I said, and adversity, and those are things that are part of life. And accepting them and uh, um, and having them transformed into something positive is, is uh, rather than trying to eliminate them uh, because you can't you cannot eliminate them they are going to happen whether you like it or not but it's how you manage them you know right your response to them and how you manage those things you know? and not to say there's nothing there's nothing wrong with you know uh, doing some of the things that the self-help books prescribe to do there's there's good things in there there's nothing wrong with being healthy and, and, uh, and being fit and all those things. But it can become an addiction. It can become an obsession where it impacts your life so much so that there's no room for anything else in your life. You know? And that's a danger, no matter what the obsession is. Right? So, um, yeah. so I was interested in when you were talking about the values, how like, people deal with trauma and stuff. And what they value is like a way that they seem to live. Like, can you give us some examples of like what these values would be? 
Well, the overarching principle, let's take since we're about truth, unity, and love, right? And so to commit myself to those values and commit myself to a life that promotes those values and then put myself at the service of others in promoting those values, that brings an inner joy and an inner satisfaction that uh, the fleeting things that, that give you temporary thrills, you know, just cannot do. Uh, that's the kind of joy that, that Jesus talked about, this inner life of joy. It doesn't mean that it's a life without pain and suffering, but when your life has meaning and purpose um, and and has support from family, friends, and the community, uh, you can endure just about anything, right? You know, um, you, you know, look at, I mean, there's people in this building, right? There's spouses who suffer from cancer, uh, spouses who have passed away, children who are sick, all these kind of things. Even the COVID crisis, you know, uh, it's devastating. But yet, you know, coming to school here and being part of community and having a vision and having a mission of what we're doing together helps us to get through that. So it's it's getting through it rather than escaping it or getting past it. You know what I mean? There's an old phrase of, uh, and I don't know who coined this one, but I love it. It's it's uh, only. Uh, only walking through the pain will set you free, guaranteed, or your pain back free. So it's about being in it. It's about experiencing it. It's about accepting it and then putting it in proper perspective and focusing on the most important things in life, you know, the things that give us true meaning and true life, life-giving things, uh, so that those negative things, those bad things don't have, it's not that they're not there or not important, but they don't have as huge of an impact on us on our day-to-day -day life, that we can get through our tasks and not fall into deep depression where we can't get out of bed. You know, that's happened to people too, right? They obsess over these negative things and they can't break out of it and it debilitates them. You know, and that's what clinical depression is. They've experienced so many stressors in their life that it's put them over, over that edge and now they can't function. You know? um, so it's about uh, keeping ourselves from getting to that just constantly repeating the negative things in our lives. Um, but again, if you're trying to get past it or eliminate it, it's like the thing where I tell you, try not to think of an elephant in the room. What are you thinking of? Elephant in the room, you know? So when we try to do battle with these negative things, they just get bigger. It turns into a prize fight. So you just have to kind of take a breath, accept it, it happened. This is part of my life now and start to work to create a different relationship with that event, that experience, so that doesn't have as huge an impact on you. And then devote yourself to other things that are more important. So you're saying it's all about acceptance, which I agree with, but um, do you believe that there's anything that we just cannot accept as humans? About ourselves or? Just well, certainly. Exactly. Well, in general, if you're talking about injustices that are going on in the world and that we can do something about, you know, absolutely not. There's those things you don't accept. You don't accept things like bullying. You don't accept things like, uh, you know, racism or, uh, or sexism or those other isms that cause harm to people. Those are unacceptable. We try to minimize those things or, you know, eradicate them. But there's some things that you can't change. There's, there's a quote there by Maya Angelou that I like. If you don't like something, change it. And if you can't change it, then change your attitude, <laughs> you know? 
that's that's wise words. Yeah, there are things that we can't accept. We can't accept the killing. We can't accept uh, you know doing harm to children. All those kind of those are unacceptable, and we we fight against those things. Okay, um, but as far as within ourselves, um, the only way to move forward is to accept it, not deny it. The worst thing you do is deny that I have a problem. For instance, like you know the alcoholic thing, I don't have a problem. <laughs> you know, and uh, what are you talking about? You know. Um, that just makes things worse, right? Uh, so that's what I'm talking about when I say acceptance. You have to acknowledge your own responsibilities and what you're doing and what's happening to you and uh, accept those. And once you can accept them and acknowledge them, then you can have control over them, right? But if you don't even aren't even aware of them, then how are you going to control something you don't even know is there? Or how are you going to try to manage it, you know what I mean? So that's what I mean by acceptance. You have to acknowledge it, accept it as your own, own it, and then you can begin to manage it. I think, um, I think like a character like uh, Billy Pilgrim, he's a very like emotional, like kind of an emotionally unstable character, and uh, he just has a lot of trouble getting past these very like mm-hmm. crazy things. And like, it it seems like for these like past ten years, uh, it's that. Maybe it's just like more of the media, but it definitely seems like it, like it's gotten like a little crazier. Mm-hmm. So like, I think like, and it kind of seems like at this point people are almost like getting like not like numb to it, but everything's just like just sort of blends in together all the yeah. craziness. So, and uh, I I think like uh, I think like if if he was if Billy Pilgrim if he was put in like today's age right now I think he would I think he would struggle a lot for sure mm-hmm. accepting all these things but I think it, it could also be like it's almost like it's it's almost uh, going back to what you said like bad bad things are gonna always happen no mm-hmm. matter what and like obviously you know uh, obviously uh, you can't always be happy but you just kinda you really just have to uh, what'd you say move the pain yeah, you have yeah. to accept it and move through it and work through it, not around it or get past it or deny it. Or, yeah. Yeah. And for Billy Pilgrim, now he's in a different situation. He's actually having hallucinations, right, and dreams and so on. And that's a real, yeah, that's, he, uh, he's that's a, beyond the self-help realm, right? I mean, that's that's a clinical thing, you know. It is, he's, a, he's sort of a, he's a kind of the definition of trying to escape. He, he has uh, whenever uh, whatever he's he was a prisoner of war at one point mm-hmm. in the chapter and uh, and uh, he, uh, he he has periodic hallucinations mm-hmm. where he's he's back in his uh, optometry office mm-hmm. because that's where it's safest to yeah. him so he so there's he, he's he's a I think he's a really good example of how uh, how um, Sorry, you, you uh, how you don't always uh, one second. uh, so, so how uh, it's hard, it's hard for a lot of people to try to go through these certain things, but uh, eventually it's just it's just something as like uh humans that we all just have to go through. Well, yeah, but in his situation, that's a, 
it's a very it's a, it's yeah. a psychological clinical issue yeah. you know that's that's something that needs professional help and therapy as well as medication and so on too you know and that's a that's a hard thing you know when someone sustains that kind of trauma uh, you know I think the more important question to ask ourselves then is is how we respond to people who are going through that right mm-hmm. and, and not so much on, on that person and what he can do to get past it but what's our responsibility towards people who are suffering in that way, you know? Um, and there's so much stigma attached even today to, to mental illness, you know? If, if you have a physical disability, well, people get that, you know? You know, let me help you, you know? Let me open a door for you. Let me carry this for you. Can I, you know, can I help you cross the street if you're blind? But if you have a, a, a mental uh, kind of disability or something like that's going, it's a big stigma around that. It's like, you know, hands up, ooh. It's taboo. People don't want to talk to you. People don't, you know, they want to put you somewhere where they don't have to, you know, deal with you, right? Um, that's, I think, the issue today. And we see that, I think, even with how much funding is is allotted, you know, from our federal budget to help veterans that are dealing with things like this. And, uh, you know, we just, we just kind of want them to get better or go away, <laughs> you know, but... But you have to invest in that, you know, there's because there's a stigma about that, right? You know, there's something wrong, you know. Yeah, that that stigma. So it's always been there's always been a very big stigma. But like um, mm-hmm. I know if there's like on social media and stuff, you'll always see stuff about how mental health matters. But uh, but uh, there's all these uh, like these mental wards, they all close down and like mm-hmm. there's there's really nowhere for these people right to go and it's, exactly. they're put in society and it's uh, mm-hmm. so it really it really is uh sort of you know hypocrisy to, correct yeah most of the states have defunded their mental uh, health facilities uh, you know mental hospitals and things like that and uh, so what happens to the folks well they, they get put into either prison system you know if they're violent yeah or they are then uh, are in some halfway house where they end up going through there and then they end up homeless and living the streets you know and then they were being judged you know look at those homeless people they, they're homeless because they don't want to work <laughs> you know and so we have that judgment and and then the majority of course are going to be you know what we're talking about now in class is, is racism the majority of them are people of color because they have less wealth traditionally and, and less resources to uh, proper um, representation in courts and and all those kind of things and so disproportionately it's the, who are on the streets homeless and then it just uh, perpetuates the cycle right so it's a big problem uh, all right, uh, oh yeah I was just gonna add how uh, it's um, going back to what mr. P said it's really good advice for somebody like normal to be able to like take that negative and turn it into a positive but I think that uh, connecting to like how there's less and less options for people who have mental disabilities to go like somebody like Billy Pilgrim Pilgrim, who's experiencing such like traumatic, you know, hallucinations and everything. It's, it's kind of hard for him to find an outlet where he can like, you know, really turn to uh, because he never knows when it's going to happen and nobody really understands him. They kind of just think he's crazy. So yeah, I was just. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's the term we use, right? He's crazy, right? That's the stigma. That's how we refer to people with a mental disability, you know, they're crazy, they're nuts, you know, weird, you know, all these uh, adjectives we attach to that, you know, and uh, that's part of the part of the stigma. It 
there's a taboo and there's a real fear around that because there's a lack of understanding, you know, of what it is. I understand when someone has a broken leg or has had knee surgery. I get it, you know, and uh, I see that they struggle and I'm there to help. But when someone has a mental disability, then I don't know. It's kind of hidden. It's kind of uh, taboo. It's uh, it's misunderstood. And so we just dismiss people that they're crazy, man. And stay away, right? Um, and it's unfortunate. You know? uh, I think uh, I think we've uh, sort of found a great opportunity with you. Uh, thank you, though. That was... Uh, yeah, You're welcome. Thanks, guys. Awesome stuff. We will do continue on part with part three, and now we're going to talk about. Uh, the different motives and reasons why people join the RV in the novel and today. And we are going to talk about uh, Lazaro and uh, both Billy and how their motives were most likely different. And so I just, I was thinking that like, we see Billy join the army, but he was almost like when he joined, he didn't really have a motive, it seemed like, because he was just there. He was an outsider and he, he was like more for the experience. But then we look at Lazaro and we always we see Lazaro talking about like he's always he's this big bad tough guy and he's always talking about killing how he kills people and he was bragging about how he killed a dog with clock spirals into a sink and it's just very different for the totally different characters and Billy's or Lazaro's motive more seemed because he was he loved the thrill of the violence and that's that's a motive for some people but for other people it's more of a motive like their reasoning is just because uh, that they have nothing, they didn't go to college and they thought war was going to the art and listen to the art was the best idea for them. Yeah, Lazaro is uh, very intense. He, um, seems to, he talked about how he always wants to get revenge on someone, that how, how much he loves revenge and all. That's the one about the dog he was talking about, that the dog bit him and he wanted revenge. While Billy kind of just sits back and goes along and Lazaro is, Lazaro uh, talked about how he's gonna get his revenge on Billy once. Uh, once uh, the guy that died in the, the train car. Oh, oh Weary. Weary. Yeah, Weary. Weary. He's gonna get revenge for Weary once he said that uh, Billy was the reason for his death. For his death, so he was. Uh, Lazaro was very intense compared to Billy. Yeah, I. Um, I also, from the beginning of the novel, also I think. Uh, Billy was never really supposed to serve in war, right? He was, uh, yeah. he's like a priest assistant. Yeah. And, uh, but like, obviously once he, once Billy actually, he actually had to fight, he, uh, he really just, he was not interested at all at like the fighting. He, he was actually more interested. He thought it'd be like a chance to like see the world, which I, I, I also found interesting because he's a very kind of, uh, uh, introverted guy and uh, and uh, and uh, was there sorry was there exactly a reason why Lazaro was so intense like not really he, he just say, he's yeah. one of those guys that was living up to like the bro code or whatever yeah, like yeah. you touch me or my friends I'm like, even though Lazaro like wasn't a 
big guy. Like, Vanega explains him as a very small guy. And then we see him get into a fight with the Englishman, and he gets his, yeah, he broke his arm. He was, like, out of bed, all beaten up. It's a very weird connection that Vanega made between a tough guy and a little guy. I think, uh, I think that also, um, Bill Billy's reasoning and, uh, and Lazaro's reasoning also can be very similar to like what soldiers do today. So like I'm sure there's some soldiers who uh, obviously joining joining the army is prob- probably an exciting experience. And I think some soldiers uh, they they obviously take into account there might be fighting, but I, I think they're more looking towards the experience of just seeing different parts of the world. And then I think there's there's just uh, there's just guys uh, who are really intense, just like uh, just like Lazaro, and uh, you know they they want to go to Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever 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 the fighting is, and that's like their that's their sole purpose. So it's it's kind of a uh, I'm I'm sure there's always there's always middle there's always middle ground of why soldiers want to enlist, but uh, it's a it's always interesting to sort of uh, see that duality and how how it's rep- how it, how that representation in slaughterhouse five is uh, is, uh, is still uh, yeah. I think the dramatic differences between the two are very uh, pretty interesting to see, especially how like since even like within the first three chapters, like Billy really never seems to have any motivation to be there, and then just you see Lazaro is just always like ready to fight somebody and like wants to get a revenge for his. Uh, his fallen friend and then just Billy like almost like this uh, lack of motivation like even carries over into like the second three uh, chapters four five and six where he like knows he's gonna die and he's just like tells the police like no just what needs to happen so it's like you kind of just see like the, the main thing throughout of like how Billy just doesn't really have any will to like live especially during and after the war and just Lazaro is like trying his hardest to like prove himself and to like uh, get revenge I definitely agree and like what Jurgen uh, said before that. He said uh, how there's a middle ground. I think it's important to acknowledge that because you can't classify every person that enjoys being in the military like Lazaro and wants to be the elf. We can't classify them as these crazy people. And we can't uh, classify people that joined the military because they uh, didn't enjoy school or they want to continue their academics to be just lazy people. We can't classify them. There has to be a middle ground. I, uh, I think, I think also eventually, it, uh, like how, however long they serve, they eventually, like, when they serve up to like a certain point of length of time, it'll eventually sort of weed itself away into like a middle ground. I'm sure. Uh, what I'm sure there are soldiers who just never want to see war again because of all the action they've like sort of seen and then i'm sure there are soldiers who uh obviously war is a very bad experience but they kind of they get all this training and uh and they they signed up to defend and fight their for their country and i'm sure some of them almost feel like it's just kind of useless just like being there so um eventually and it is eventually the duality all kind of uh, evaporates into into the middle ground, I think.
that concludes um, the second episode of Vana Guns Crusaders and in this podcast so far we have talked about uh, at least time jumps and uh, the narrators, narrators outside perspective of society and uh, like soldiers and people who have gone through trauma and like how they deal with it and like how Mr. Perovich has talked about it and we would also like to thank him for that for including us having uh, seeing us in the interview and the last thing we talked about was uh, the motives and reasons on why soldiers in uh, Slaughterhouse 5 and in real life to listen to the Army. We, uh, we included uh, Bizarro and Blade Corbin. Uh, and uh, that, uh, that's the end of the Monica 